Welcome to Season 3 of The Unforgiving 60 with your hosts, Ben Pronk and Tim Curtis. As two ex-SAS guys armed with MBAs, Ben and Tim seek out people leading lives less ordinary and talk with them about how they fill their unforgiving minutes and what helps them go always a little further. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to The Unforgiving 60 and to the second of our shameless plugs of our book, The Resilient Shield. I am joined by Tim Curtis. This is a humble plug. G'day, Ben. <laughs> yeah. Hopefully it's not grating too much um, in in terms of uh, backing up from last week where we had that wonderful episode with Alex Lloyd looking at the structure and, and sort of the content of The Resilient Shield. This week, I thought we'd ditch Alex and just uh, tune in with Dan uh, as the three authors and talk about some of the more personal aspects of our journey into an interest in resilience, the generation of the model, and then some of the things that we've incorporated into our own lives to help build our own resilience shields. Obviously, being an author and all that. Now, now you know, when someone says, what do you do, Ben? Do you answer, I'm an author? <laughs> ben Bronk, best-selling author. Well, full disclosure, I not best-selling. Yeah, and not an author either. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. One third an author. Third of an author. Well, should we hear from the other third of an author? Let's go, let's put all three together to form <laughs> a full author. A full author and uh, talk a little bit about the resilient shield. Let's get on with the show. Have you been to India? 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 Well, you better get some of it, India. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Unforgiving 60 podcast. I am Ben Pronk. And I'm Tim Curtis. And there's another Pronk. Dan, how are you? Very well. Very well. Thank you, gentlemen. Good, good. Um, We are going to talk Resilient Shield today. Um, If you've had the mispleasure of tuning in over the last sort of 12 months, you would have heard us flogging the fact that we've written a book and that was released uh, just recently and it's been... Like in so many ways, great to to have the thing out there. It's a relief uh, in terms of a workload perspective, but it's actually really pretty cool to see it in the flesh. What about you, Tim? You've had a different experience. You've seen it a, a few times in the wild. Uh, I was walking to lunch and I walked into Dimmicks and it was there front and centre and the new release counter right next to the bestsellers. And then, um, yeah, via... Uh, bookshop called Boffin's Books, which is quite yeah. famous in Perth, and it was on a stand next to Jerry Seinfeld's book, which I thought was mm. an interesting comparison of genres. It was pretty cool. It's funny seeing it next to proper books as well. It's almost it's masquerading as a, as a real, real book. Mm. I noticed it in that photo that you sent through of that, Tim, couple over from Jordan Peterson's new book, and that uh, created a, a massive amount of imposter syndrome to think that we're on the same shelf as a bloke like that. Exactly. Well, actually, interestingly, the stand was an Allen and Unwin stand, so I hope that Pam McMillan aren't listening. <laughs> Pam McMillan, if you are listening, get some stands into the bookshops. <laughs> Well, we want to talk about the book, and um, in fact, we've we've just finished recording an episode of the wonderful Life on the Line podcast with Alex Lloyd, where we go into a lot of detail uh, about the book and its structure and and some of the key points. So we thought we'd um, go maybe a little more sort of personal um, in terms of how this book came about from us individually and potentially 
even start looking at what we do as humans to to build our own resilience shield because it's always been important that we practice what we preach and in many ways this book came from our own personal experiences. So Dan, it's it's probably logical to start with you because a lot of our sort of drive to write this book came from our observations of friends and for me, you know, the, the, uh, I guess, journey uh, that you went through um, post some traumatic experiences in Afghanistan. Yeah, it's been a great opportunity to reflect and bring together a lot of the experiences, make sense of a lot of the experiences of my previous career as an army doctor and some of the incredible stuff that we all experienced in Afghanistan and my, my personal uh, sort of events over there, some of which were, you know, absolutely fantastic, some of which were, were completely horrific with hindsight, but most of which at the time I didn't really fully appreciate for what they were, to be honest. I think the, the, the highs and the lows I didn't register, and I, I guess you guys and many listening will associate with this. When you're, when you're in one of those bubbles and you're part of something that's moving along quite quickly and you become a little bit desensitized or recalibrated and and I guess it's like that frog in boiling water analogy when you're when you're in there you're not really registering the magnitude of things that might be happening and so there was a, a few events where that occurred and, and they got glossed not glossed over but they didn't get appropriately processed at the time or even registered uh, when I reflect properly I didn't ever have the conscious recognition that I was accumulating trauma as I went along and that that came later and so the and and the key experiences some listening might have heard me talk about it before but were things like losing mates in combat and responding to to teammates who had been uh, shot or blown up and wasn't able to uh, save them and and then a, a host of other responding to mass casualty blast incidents and and the local nationals kids women uh, getting caught up in the the gunfights or blasts and and so all, all this kind of uh, cumulative exposure to these traumatic incidents and and somewhere and I, I use the analogy when I talk to it and this was one that was given to me by a U.S. military surgeon but a bucket that that starts to get filled up and and I guess that analogy gets used a bit but but it's not until that bucket starts to really brim full and start to overflow a little bit that you start to notice and we use the analogy in the resilient shield book about the resilient stress scales so resilience and stress on opposing sides of scales and it's not until that stress kind of overwhelms and topples those scales until most people register so the the, the, for me, the genesis of, of looking into this was as I discharged from the army and at a time where I had expected life would be far less stressful and things would improve, I'd be home a lot more, I'd be uh, with my young family a lot more, I was going into a job where I was earning more money, I'd only seen the positives and what I failed to recognise was just how invested I was in my military role, just how much of my identity was was fused with my military role and the resilience that that brought with it and so when I discharged I uh, I fell in fell in a bit of a heap and didn't have a a lot of fun for a couple of years just trying to negotiate my transition to civilian life Uh, lots of veterans I think listening will associate with that and 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 people that have left a, a significant job significant relationship big life changes it takes a lot of adjustment and it was during that period of adjustment that 
I started to actually register that I had accumulated some of this trauma and some of the, the some of it caught up with me. So I started having symptoms that were unquestionably post-traumatic stress, all the hallmark symptoms, the bad dreams, the intrusive thoughts, the uh, physiological type heart racing, palm sweating uh, responses to these thoughts, lots of triggers, lots of smells and sights and sounds would, would bring back memories that I didn't necessarily want to have. And, and so it was going through all of that personally as a human being and then analyzing analyzing it as a doctor and knowing hey hey this is these are symptoms of post-traumatic stress this is the physiological response what was it that that kept this at bay all those years when it was actually occurring and then it's uh, it's come charging out when I'm paradoxically when I was safer than ever and life on paper looked uh, much much safer and much better than ever and so that that was what got me personally thinking about mm. that looking into the literature and doing a, a bit more of a deep dive into resilience and it was almost for me to codify it and quantify it and put a name to it and there, there's a great quote that, that resonated with me in, in Matthew McConaughey's uh, book Green Lights which is fantastic worth well worth a listen hey. on audio I reckon his, his voice is, is brilliant but he quotes either quote from him is is black is not as dark when you know it's black and to me that just resonated it was it was sort of when i put a bit of structure around this started to see how what i was experiencing for what it was that then allowed me to start mapping out a bit of a, a roadmap if you like back to a, a more resilient space and a better space and so that was where this whole research into resilience started i've always been a keen writer well i have been for many years i like to write i like to journal i like to jot things down and do a little bit of blogging and those kind of things and so i started to formalize my thoughts in a few uh sort of journal and, and blog articles and and then yeah you, you you guys uh sort of we picked the story up from there when we came together to do the project before we go into that, I'm keen, two questions related to that post-traumatic stress period. One, from people who have never experienced these kind of symptoms, there can be a perspective that will just suck it up. It's in your head, you know, mm -hmm. get on with it, deal with it and move on. So I'm interested in, in your views on that. And probably not unrelated is, I guess, the relativity of trauma that can cause uh, post-traumatic stress or PTSD. And um, you and I, Dan, were talking uh, just this morning, actually, about the fact that it's not a competition. You know, it, it from the outside, again, you can see, well, you know, this person went through this trauma, which wasn't as bad as this other one. How come they've got, you know, PTSD? Can you talk to both of those and potentially how they may stigmatise and act as a barrier to people actually addressing these issues? Oh, absolutely. And I think that, that suck it up uh, type attitude is a, a very, it's a very common one. It's it's an understandable one in many ways for people that, and it's like anything when you're looking at someone else's experience and, and you haven't experienced it personally, it's almost impossible to have any visceral, emotional uh, empathy, sympathy, the, these kind of things. I, I do get that, and I think also the coming from a culture like Army Special Operations that does tend to, uh, well, you know, stigmatise stigmatize is probably a pretty strong word, but there's an, an expectation that it's a stoic culture and that and that men will be men and you'll you'll take it on the chin and get on with it and and most do and I think there's when you when you widen the lens a little there's a lot of cultures around the place I've recently had some engagement with paramedics ambulance officers EMTs and and it, sadly that culture is is sort of 
around in that line of work. Uh, I think policing is another one where I've had some engagement and it's very much that has, well, has been, hopefully it's moving forward at the moment, but that that macho stoic culture of just suck it up and have a, have a beer and, and uh, sort of push your demons aside and get on with it. So, you know, I, I do very much understand that. And I've possibly been guilty in the past myself of, of having that mentality. And then to experience some of those symptoms and, and realise, and superimposed on all of that is being a, a medical professional as well and being able to see it through that lens and, and knowing that having helped others out with this, knowing that there are strategies you can employ, uh, but being in that situation myself, it, it wasn't as easy as just, you know, this is happening, so do this and, and you'll get better, which I think was a, another great insight for me from a, a doctor-patient relationship in the past where I'd seen people struggling and, and perhaps not uh, sort of given them enough I guess, you know, you can you can have that external impression that, that here's the solution. I'm telling you what to do. This is what the science says. Go and do it and you'll get better. And it's just, it's plain and simple, not not as straightforward as, <laughs> as that. And, yeah. and then the, the second point is one that I find really interesting in terms of the, the trauma not being a, a competition and, and it being relative. And that's something that I've seen play out over the years and, and had play out in things like presentations, workshops that I've done where I'll tell uh, snippets of my story and, and the significant key events that impacted me, how they impacted me, and then how I managed to process that trauma and move forward in a really meaningful way. And uh, plenty of times I've had people come up to me in breaks and and, and open up with the you know, it's it's nothing compared to your experience. However, I had I had this, and and one that sticks in my mind is a a uh, person who, who came up to me and and had been held up as a bank teller. So someone had pulled a knife on them mm. and, and held it to their throat, and they suffered some fairly uh, sort of significant, as would be understandable, yeah. uh, post-traumatic symptoms after that and had to make their way through it. And, and that was one of those conversations that opened up with, it's nothing compared to what you experienced, but I had this. And, and uh, I disagree in terms of that it's nothing compared. And, I mean, first and foremost, it's it's not a contest and it's not about <laughs> yeah. having having better trauma than the next person or somehow being more worthy of a diagnosis yeah. than someone else. But this comes back to the resilient stress scales we talked to in the book I mentioned earlier. And, and for trauma to occur, what needs to have happened is your stress, the, the stress needs to have overwhelmed your resilience against that particular stress. And so, for instance, the, the bank teller, who has had a knife pulled on them, that's hugely stressful. Of course, that's going to cause a degree of post-traumatic uh, consequence because they're not resilient against that stress. If you take a, a special operations soldier who's done a bunch of training, is out on a, a mission with all everything that goes along with that, for someone to pull a knife on them, that's not particularly stressful. That's the old, you know, bring a knife to a gunfight type <laughs> scenario. And that's, that's probably something that, that a special ops guy would, would laugh about, to be honest, after the fact, uh, after they'd re resolved the situation. But so it's, it's not about absolute stressors and, and gunfighting or, you know, uh, having people die or seeing trauma in front of you is trumps a, a, a trauma that's in absolute terms, perhaps, uh, less stressful. It's about your individual resilience and whether or not that that stress of the situation overwhelms that. And so, yeah, I think that I've, I've unfortunately heard situations where veterans have been at at uh, 
at, at kind of trauma counselling and, and they have gotten into that un, unfortunate situation where they're comparing or they're looking at others mm. who are traumatised by what they perceive to be less stress. And I think that concept is getting lost on them and it's not about being more or less worthy or competing. It's just about whether the stress overwhelmed your resilience. And if you have that consequence, then the, the focus should be internal to work on, on you processing the trauma uh, rather than external on whether you're more worthy of uh, attention for your symptoms than someone else. Mm. Clearly, um, you know, the basis from your perspective, a lot of your own experiences, a lot of your, your medical experiences. Tim, in the meantime, we were working together within our consultancy, working with a lot of organisations doing crisis management and leadership and saw the, I guess, the requirement for resilience come out. We saw a lot of demand from our corporate clients for this thing called resilience. And, and that kind of got us thinking about, well, what is this thing called resilience and we sort of figured it was more than just physical and mental toughness yeah i mean one of the things that fascinated us uh, over the last well you know decade of time in the corporate environment was you could introduce stress into a highly controlled environment through a mock or a simulation or an exercise and see human behaviors completely change and specifically leadership behaviors but they knew it was a mock a simulation or an exercise and People would do things that were seemingly completely irrational. When you focused on the leader, they would make decisions. And in my brain, I was thinking, would that be really what you would do? <laughs> yeah. It was quite quite odd, quite peculiar. And the stress overload that you were talking about, Dan, with the bucket, maybe I wanted to ask a follow-up question of Dan if I can, Ben. But, you know, when that bucket was at 50% or 75% or 99%, how can you recognise that? I mean, what do you know now that could have maybe drained the bucket a little bit? And before I have you answer, I was introduced to a fascinating concept in the last six months about sprains. You know, if you ask anyone, what do you do when you sprain an ankle? Mm. Everyone can give you the answer. Right. Well, what do you do when you sprain your brain? Mm. And that concept's quite interesting. When you reflect about stress in your life, and I'm talking cognitive load, Generally, we do the opposite of rest, ice, compression, elevation. We work harder because we think some way, somehow, that's going to solve the problem. Your thoughts, Dan? Yeah, I think that's a great analogy. And the the uh, I tell a story. I think I'd have to look up, but but in uh, that previous uh, average seventy kilo dickhead uh, book that I put out there, just some reflections. I think I tell it in that. Uh, but if not, I'll paraphrase it here. I'd, a US military surgeon who introduced me to that topic, we'd been we'd responded to a, a big IED blast. It was it was local national partner force in Afghanistan, and there was we we couldn't tell how many uh, victims there were in that blast because it was just parts. We and all the parts didn't didn't add up to a whole number of people. Uh, but we were putting these people back together, and it was it was falling out of that that we we needed to X-ray them to make sure there was no unexploded ordnance in them, so we could put them on military aircraft and get them back to their villages 
for burial. And this US surgeon had set us up to x-ray them in his facility in Afghanistan. And, and he was visibly shaken by this. And he was a really experienced guy, lots and lots of uh, experience. He'd been a, a corpsman, US Marine corpsman in Vietnam, done a couple of tours, and then gone and become a doctor, become a surgeon and had deployed uh, endless times. And and so I'd seen it all. And, and in, the, uh, in the aftermath of that, that was I met up with him a couple of weeks later and he brought it up. And that was when he introduced me to that bucket analogy. And to, to come back to and basically saying that for the longest time, he had experienced all this trauma and didn't notice any issues at all. And then it started, started to catch up with him. And naively at that point, I, um, I, I didn't take that on board. I didn't take that on board. And, and so to talk to your question, Tim, looking back, the, I think while I didn't feel affected at all, I, I think if I had have been a bit more insightful, a bit more mindful and spent a bit more time reflecting and perhaps journaling at that stage, mm. I could have seen that what was going on was, was abnormal. And, and like I said earlier, I, I was in that bubble and for, for that environment, it was not abnormal, but for a human being and, and from a, a stress perspective, these were abnormal things. This was lots and lots of exposure to the combat environment, to the high tempo operations, to uh, mutilation, human suffering, and, and these kind of things. And, and if I had have recognised that, I, I might have started to, to, to just, just track it a little, a little more closely to perhaps engage with a bit of... Uh, the psychological support at that point. We talk a lot in the book about not waiting for you to break before you start to build resilience, get ahead of the curve. And I think the same can be said for trauma. Like look for where you do have trauma. We all do in our lives. And, and I think journaling and we talk about debriefing your life is a great place to start. And if you're starting to, to see these these what what should be for a normal person abnormal stressors that aren't affecting you they might be worth a little more of a look if you're starting to have and with hindsight I probably was uh, while I was still with the military intrusive thoughts and, and bad dreams here and there these these little indicators that while they might not be debilitating at all but just these little indicators that there might be a demon or two lurking in the uh, in the back of your mind it's probably worth exploring them either by yourself if you feel confident to do so or if it's a bigger trauma and a, a bit more overwhelming then certainly with professional help and i think the the old stitch in time saves nine is is mm. very applicable here but the first step is is being mindful to catch some of those thoughts and those early indicators as they're happening because most people won't and to to without you know delving too far into it but but just reflecting a bit and seeing if if what your experiences have been uh, if you think they should affect a, a what you know a normal person and if so then have a bit of a better look into that and look for some strategies there maybe seek some so a bit of professional help it's the old uh, it's like you know we, we talk i think in the book as well certainly in workshops about the, a race car or a car in general you don't wait for the thing to break before you get it serviced you, you proactively maintain it and and exactly as you said before, Tim, like a, a sprained ankle, we know how to manage that. But a, a sprained brain is probably not as obvious because we're not getting the obvious physical mm. indicators. But, uh, yeah, I think a bit more mindfulness, a bit more reflecting to detect early indications and then a bit of that proactive management is, is probably the way to go and certainly I think would have helped me greatly if I had have 
been uh, mindful enough to, to see those indicators early. Turn on my TV set, I don't believe it, man. Fit through the paper, I don't understand. Death and destruction, if they are that coming for less. I can't believe it, man. What is this fucking mess? I don't believe it. I don't believe it. Oh, I don't believe so, it. Prompt Brothers, why don't we go for breakfast? You guys, this is where it all started, really. Uh, the two of you coming together for breakfast in Adelaide? In Melbourne. Oh. Melbourne, yep. Yeah, we're heading to East Sale. Um, we were honoured to be invited to the um, Royal Australian Air Force Officer Training School to present on our thoughts on resilience as a factor of leadership. And that was really a, a bit of a crystallising moment. Um, but we were certainly reflecting deeply on... Uh, our thoughts on resilience. And Dan, actually, we, we had an interesting little moment uh, with the breakfast order in, in terms of testing your resilience, mate. Yeah, that was, yeah, <laughs> ordered the old eggs, Benny, with ham and it came out with salmon. Uh, so, thankfully. <laughs> so, uh, he upended the table and <laughs> <laughs> abused the waiter. <laughs> yeah, just over to my reptilian brain to respond to that. So, yeah, no, I, I tactfully. Uh, Sort of pointed that out and and then yeah clearly the, the meal came back out way too quickly for it to be a cooked one tasted a lot like salmon but but um, yeah first world problems but certainly yeah over breakfast i think there was some some light bulb moments and the just that formalization in order to then present uh, that that evening as as you do but um just that it, it all started to come together my experiences with Ben's view and, and Ben having, you know, been working with you, Tim, and, and just all of those three things coming together, being able to look at this thing from multiple angles. To that point, I think we'd all been developing our own ideas individually and presenting here and there on bits and pieces. And I'd captured a few things and, and jotted down. I'd actually started, I don't know if we've ever had this discussion, but I'd started, I think, I think we did, we started a, a bit of a book around resilience sometime prior and, and kind of shelved it. And, and then just a, a fortuitous discussion with um, Alex from Pan Mac had, uh, had sort of looked ahead in the COVID day and age as to what the, the big topics of discussion and the topics for books might be. And they'd come up with resilience and we were developing this between the, the three of us and then the shield model. And then that all flowed on to, to getting back in touch with Alex and, and him encouraging us to bring this thing together as a, a book. But yeah, certainly that, um, that just discussion and, and throwing ideas back and forth and, and adding all of our concepts together uh, was, was a, a bit of a, a watershed moment, I think, for the Resilient Shield model. And whose genius idea was the shield iconography, the hoplon? I'm going with Ben on that. I reckon, I reckon that's yours, Ben. I'll claim it. Mm. I think we did, we were attracted to the idea that this is a defence. I'd never actually thought of it as an offensive tool as well. I'll, I'll give credit to Tim for that and the whole uh, kind of Spartan analogy, I think, which is incredibly fitting that it's not just for you, it's for your team, your mm. your sort of social fabric. Mm. The idea that it is not just a defensive tool, it, it is something that you can use to attack and, and sort of metaphorically make the the, the most uh, sort of gains in your life. Um, yeah, I think it, it definitely fits. And, and certainly 
I think um, that idea, you know, we initially thought of layers as, as almost distinct, but as we looked at it more and more, these things are inextricably woven. And, um, yeah, I, I love that Chicken Street analogy that, that Tim introduced us to, the, the strength of the weave. Mm. Yeah, it's nice that Hoplon, the Spartan shield, because it's passed through the maternal side, so yeah. there's a slice of innate. You use a shield, it leaves you one hand free to do other stuff, and, yeah, you can use the shield to attack as well. Mm. Yeah, And the, uh, the Chicken Street analogy well, sort of dawned on me from sitting in God knows how many carpet shops through the years in Afghanistan buying carpets and always being curious about the knots per square inch valuation. You know, you you love the surface of the carpet, but the, the carpet seller always turns it upside down. Mm. Keeps saying, no, 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 this is where you buy the carpet. You're looking at the underside of the carpet. Yeah. Mm. So, you know, that, that sort of breakfast in the, the little uh, laneway cafe in Melbourne, I guess, started that crystallisation of the model. Um, but we went through a number of iterations, didn't we, throughout our, our research and sort of, I think at one stage it was an eight-layer shield. It was very similar to that something about Mary. You know, there's, <laughs> there's right. no eight-minute abs. You know, like, can, can we cut the shield in half? <laughs> Let's neck it back. Four. Yeah, yeah. Um, but ended up with the, the six-layer shield, the innate mind, body, social, professional and adaptation, um, which came about really as a, as a result of I guess, our anecdotal reflections, but then doubling down on the, the research. Yeah, I think when, when we all started to really commit to that project and, and solidify and crystallise the model, it, it started to become really clear that all the evidence, whilst it was all interwoven, and which is the, the strength of the weave, exactly, the Afghan rug and the, you know, the, the other analogy there that we use in, in the uh, book is around Kevlar and, you know, a strand of Kevlar by itself doesn't, doesn't do much, but weave it together in the right fashion, it'll stop bullets. And we, we tell the, the story of our friend uh, Trini, Albert Trin, who, who mm. was wearing a ballistic vest that caught a bullet in Afghanistan. He was, uh, he was kind enough to share that story. But the, I think the, whilst everything was interwoven and, and you couldn't tease one apart from the other when it came to mind, body, social professional, particularly mind and body, it did become clear that we could put most of the evidence that we were finding in terms of the scientific literature into one one category or the other primarily. Yeah. And so, yeah, it neatly divided itself into those layers of what the evidence already told us was at least correlative and in some instances definitively causative of resilience. So, yeah, it, it sectioned itself out mm. nicely as we, as we uh, delved into it a bit further. And while we're self-congratulating on how clever our model is, I also like the idea that you can have really strong layers in your resilience shield, but have that, that keep most of life's stressors out. But if you've got gaps, you know that's that metaphorical chink in your armour that can come back to to haunt you. And I think we've personally seen that a lot with people who supremely physically fit, uh, mentally robust, you know, dedicated to their jobs, but maybe have neglected their social layer, for example, and then all of a sudden something happens, they can no longer do that uh, work role, they sort of have that identity role fusion, they've got con confusion in terms of you know who they are as a human and, and everything starts unravelling because they haven't got that well-rounded um, uh, defence. A question that I'm getting a lot is what was the writing experience like? I mean, what were your observations as 
authors writing a book, 110,000, reducing to 90-plus thousand words. Well, we've got to preface it with, with your famous quote about, you know, what's it like writing with three authors? It's <laughs> Well, firstly, it was something that the publisher did not want to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But no, I think uh, people say, oh, you have to write a third of the book, and that's true, but it is triple the difficulty trying to get the writing styles together. Uh, I, I loved... In hindsight. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> no, I, I really like it. It all the, seems pretty rosy, doesn't it? Well, but it, it was also this uh, experiential resilience learning thing. And so much of what we were uh, researching, we were test running on ourselves. And, and certainly for me, I was reflecting on as we went. And, and I think we had this beautiful moment. Uh, so for, for the listeners, we, we kind of divvied up the book into chapters um, and wrote a number of chapters each and then um, sort of converged and discussed and analysed and and smoothed them out together. And I remember in one of the first sessions that we had, and this was all by Zoom because we were in the middle of lockdown and Dan was in Adelaide, um, things getting quite heated over little happy for glad changes and us doing our chest puffing and my sentence is better than your sentence and things getting a little bit tense and I remember um, you know Tim sort of called us on it and it was for me a really good wake-up call that hang on we're writing this book about resilience about you know a lot of it's about parking your ego and and looking at big picture and and not getting stressed over the small stuff and yet in the process of that we're threatening to blow up your relationship with your best mate and your brother um over over some sort of mouse shit and so for me that was a great little experiential learning thing that hang on let's start practicing what we're preaching and and look at you know, really the, the gratitude of being able to to write this thing, being able to collect these thoughts on what was a pretty important topic for us and for the globe at that stage, because this was in the midst of the, the first wave of, of COVID. Mm. We also conveniently forgot there was a battery of editors that really knew what an Oxford comma was, <laughs> <laughs> rather than us three arguing about it. Well, can we talk about the interface with publishers, plural, to start with, Dan, and, and how we harmonised on Pan Macmillan? Yeah, just a couple of points that came up when you guys were, were talking there about the process. I, I think we, when we talked to uh, the happiness is in the struggle. We talk to that in in the book and and talk about you know what is happiness and and you know it's it's very much the, the literature supports is most people uh, I think when they read that passage or think to it now it's it's something satisfying only comes after a struggle and and certainly for me that the the struggle of us writing a book in that manner was uh, was really satisfying and to have it out there now makes it makes it far more uh, of a, a sort of satisfying experience and a, an achievement, if you like. And, and I mean, the other part of it, I, I really quite enjoyed those. I know we, we got a bit bogged down in them, but those Friday night, three-hour Zoom sessions, thrashing our ideas together. And, and we talk also about that, that mastermind group and at the risk of calling you two blokes masterminds. <laughs> 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 that was a, for me, that was a, a fantastic. I really looked forward to to those sessions because it was a and it was intellectually engaging and it was a good opportunity to. We, we also talk about you know you're the the net sum of of the people you're hanging around with and and that was at a time where professionally I was a bit sort of stagnant in the role that I was at at the time and not getting a lot of uh, sort of mental stimulation out of that role. I was a little bit on autopilot to be honest. And so yeah, I enjoyed that. Uh, intellectual engagement of those sessions. But I think the other thing is I had in my mind 
uh, and I drafted out what I thought the chapters should be. And I had in my mind what they would look like. And to, I would have been incapable of even coming up with the concepts that you blokes came up with. So I think that having those three minds and being able to get perspectives that you just simply couldn't have come up with yourself because with hindsight, I was so programmed into an academic way of writing, uh, over-medicalising a lot of things and was going to generate something if I was by myself that was was far more like that. And so it was, I thought it was fantastic having the three of us to be able to, to temper all of that and provide a bunch of different angles. Well, we did include one of the more scientifically and medically focused chapters in the original submission, didn't we? We wrote the prologue yeah. and then a few chapters. We circulated that around to four, perhaps five publishers. And what was fascinating, I think, you know, again, with the benefit of hindsight, is pretty much all of them came back within 24 or 48 hours and said, we want that book. Mm. And in my pea brain, I thought, oh, is that as easy as it is to get a book published? <laughs> um, little did I know that the topic of resilience and, and, you know, I guess our model as well was fascinating for the publishers. Yeah. So we speed dated those four down to two and then down to one. Yeah, and they all seemed awesome. I've, I've loved the interface and that insight into the, the whole world of publishing and the yeah. business of making books and, mm. you know, advances and royalties and contracts. And, and that being an editor is a thing. Correct. Yeah, yeah. The, the, um, that whole process, I think, has been fascinating. And uh, look, it was, I don't know what I'd expected. I guess, you know, I, I thought they'd be more kind of sharky <laughs> um, mm-hmm. but you know the the discussions and interface we we had with all of the the potential publishers were I thought quite uplifting quite transparent and and really interesting um, but eventually it was a bit of a no-brainer for us to settle on on Pan Mac for a, a couple of reasons I think mm. well Dan had already had conversations with Alex Lloyd who ultimately became the editor yeah, so I think the Alex was a, a well, is a, a great fit for us. Obviously, he's got a keen military interest. I'm not sure if you guys have been on his Life on the Line podcast prior to to that, but I'd had engagement with him there, and and just felt like a, a good fit. I think the the whole experience, and I guess we were pretty naive to it. We'd never done anything like that before. I just self published that other thing which bypasses basically all of those processes you can pretty much publish whatever you want which i did (laughs) (laughs) yeah the the formal or traditional publishing was a, a new beast and and it's only i think when we started to look more into it that we realized just how you know privileged a position it was to have not one but multiple publishers actually be interested in our book and and bring it to fruition and when you look at the statistics on first-time authors we had an absolute pinch me I'm dreaming type uh, run with it uh, is is my impression of it but we maybe we didn't appreciate that as we went along initially uh, for for exactly what it was because we had no basis for comparison. Yeah. Well, I think when we try and write a second book and this one's <laughs> flopped, we'll, we'll get that wake-up call. But no, it was. And it, it's been a fantastic um, experience, fantastic relationship to date uh, with the publisher. And of course, all of this, as I alluded to before, was happening in the midst of a global pandemic. We were locked down and our thoughts and our own experiences and reflections on resilience uh, suddenly became 
pretty much globally universal as people struggle to deal with some of the impacts of the the pandemic, which it was kind of this um, really funny moment in that the the reduction in travel certainly for us gave us a little bit more time and and horsepower to actually write the thing. Um, but all of a sudden, a lot of people were starting to think about, well, how come I am feeling lousy? You know, the, particularly in Australia, this hasn't been that uh, sort of much of an impact. You know, it's just a bit of lockdown. And yet we are having a lot of people experiencing negative outcomes. And I think that has served to reinforce the fact that, you know, this thing called resilience is a thing and there are some things that we can be doing to to sort of build it up in advance of a potential stress event. I'm really interested in maybe sharing what we actually do. We, we spoke before that we wanted this book uh, to not only be scientifically valid, but to be something that we believed in and practised ourselves. So, why don't we have a look at some of the things that, that we sort of do as individuals to, to build our own resilience shield, some of the things we've learnt through the research process for this book and what we think has worked in our own lives. Tim, I know, I mean, I think you certainly um, led the charge uh, at our end on meditation. That's been a big thing for you? Yeah, uh, only because I was curious as to what the unlocked potential were in humans. And clearly, ironically, the last frontier is exploring your own mind, you know, using stillness as an opportunity to bear witness to your own behaviours. And so after the episode with Gary Goro on The Unforgiving 60, I thought, yeah, well, why wouldn't I give that a go? What, what would I ever be concerned about? And so I went and undertook a Vedic meditation course. And for sure, it's profoundly changed my perspective on myself and those people that are around me and uh, I think also literally brought the octaves down in the house I think I'm exuding different energy and I sort of certainly see that in my interactions with the kids to name just but one little demographic um, so yeah I've, ex- I've enjoyed that uh, I'm still practicing more mindfulness techniques um, I really like there's a theory from Eckhart Tolle who you guys know I do love and when he talks about stillness, he says, read a book in the way that you don't currently read a book. He said, don't just charge through the book, but find a section that you like and maybe rewind and read it again and then put the book down and pick up a pencil and jot down what your thoughts are there. And that's but one technique mm-hmm. that's probably more mindful, but you know, you're still doing it inside your daily habits and routines. And I've just completed a rounding course, which was something that I thought might be fascinating because the uh, feedback that I got from this thing called rounding, which is simple yoga, breathing techniques into meditation, was that it was, quote, powerful, unquote. And my uh, experience with meditation, albeit effortless, is that it's incredibly powerful. So I was curious to explore how could it be more powerful through this activity called rounding. And yeah, that's been fascinating. I mean, only just recently completed the course and I've only done a few rounds, but uh, yeah, once again, not surprisingly, it's just dislocating the active part of our mind before you go into meditation, which means that when you get there, you get to that point of transcendence a bit quicker, you flush all the nonsense out of your brain a bit faster, and you reflect on nothing, and that's kind of the point. It's pretty cool. 
two phrases that really resonate with me from my own meditation experiences. The first is 10% Happier, which is, of course, the name of um, a, a wonderful book. Dan Harris. Dan Harris. Mental blank there. Um, but, but I've a, got that wrong before, actually, haven't I? Yeah. Magic on audio, that one, he, he narrates it. Oh, it's brilliant. And, and a really, I think it's an awesome little primer if you are a little bit cynical about meditation <laughs> and these kind of things, because he certainly was, and, and, and it takes you I through that. I think we all were. I was well, incredibly yeah. cynical. Yeah. I think his follow-up was called Meditation for Fidgety Skeptics or, or something. Yeah, like that. Oh, but yeah, really yeah. accessible. Yes. So 10% happy, I reckon, is a great way of putting it. You know, it's not, I don't subscribe to the thing that, you know, you hit Nirvana straight away and you, you're a changed person and all mm. that sort of stuff, but it does make a difference and, mm. and 10% is a great stat. The other one is from our interview with Nico Plowman, taking a few rows back in the cinema of your life, you know, getting back from that big overwhelming screen that, that you can't quite fix on getting back a bit seeing the big picture putting things in perspective enjoying the show a bit more um, both of those are, are things I've found um, and Dan as any of your Instagram followers would find um, in terms of body layer uh, you you've taken some some pretty interesting approaches you're you're a keen experimenter with things like keto diets and ice baths and these sorts of things yeah I've become fascinated over the years with the the whole kind of biohacking movement. I listen to a lot of the, the audio books around that. And I'm certainly not taking everything to the nth degree that some of those people trying to live to be 200 are. But I have definitely uh, embraced the cold water exposure. I, I, found, I find that to be just a, a, a super invigorating experience. I find the mental discipline, particularly in winter, of hopping in an ice bath or under a cold shower to be... Uh, just a, a great way to start a day mm. and and that, that philosophy that if you do something challenging at the start of the day then that sets you up well for your day and and then you make your bed according to is it McCraven or McChrystal I always get the two confused yeah, McCraven yeah yeah thank you thank you but yeah so certainly cold water immersion ketogenic a ketogenic diet I've found really agrees with me it is it is has been a uh, a bit of a, a game changer for me it just sharpens me mentally i feel invigorated and and great on it and as a as an aside uh you know weight falls falls off me which is an experience with most people that do keto lots of people do keto for the weight loss i i do it for uh the the other side of it which is that there's a whole stack of emerging literature around ketones and ketone bodies and, and the positive benefits of them, particularly from a, a neurological perspective, neuroprotective and, and mood regulating. And, and so I find for me that that really works. Once again, I, I do like the, the discipline of being on a ketogenic diet and the discipline of intermittent fasting appeals mm. to me as well. And these things are, are all underpinned by my mindfulness meditation uh, practice, which like you guys, I've only embraced in the you know the recent years, and, and wish I had done it much sooner. But I've found that that ability to stay mindful, and as I've gotten better at meditating, and um, and just sort of really strengthening those neural networks of impulse control, it it, it allows me to experience an ice bath in a non-judgmental way. I never thought I'd hear myself speaking in <laughs> such a fashion, but. but it's, a, it's all part, I think they all link together and, and there's a, for me, that's just part of my habits, part of my 
process now. And as I, I move into middle age, I think it's setting me up well for a, a healthier lifestyle rather than the, maybe the track that some people head down where they start to back off the exercise because you're a little bit injured or time you run out of time or inclination and maybe put on a few pounds, drink a, drink a, a few beers and watch the TV. I'm, I'm trying to just cement habits as I move into middle age and, and older age that are a, a bit more uh, productive. And, and yeah, I'd, I'd love all of that stuff. The sleep is something I've been paying a lot more attention to, mm-hmm. tracking sleep, being more disciplined with my blue light exposure, which we talked to in the book. Uh, but the the real, I think, game changer for me, and it stems from mindfulness as well, to catch your thoughts as they're happening. And and it's the gratitude, it's the optimism, mm. it's it's just really appreciating what I've got. And, and a degree of that, I, I think, is post-traumatic growth, just having been through a few experiences that were profoundly negative. And now here I am and I realise, you know, life's fantastic. We And we've all got... Uh, mates that that didn't come back from various deployments and and just using that as a positive thinking well you know what that it could have been me it wasn't here I am how can I live my best life because these mates of ours don't have the same opportunity and for me that that concept really highlights the interwoven nature of the the layers and um, your point about you know as you you sort of grow older wanting to maintain things like physical fitness I've found as I've um, gone through this journey and this learning, um, my attitude towards physical fitness has really changed. Um, in the past, it was all about, you know, got to be better. The next day has to be better and it's got to be stronger and, and all that sort of stuff. And clearly you hit a point in your life where the, the stats start going downhill. But now I really enjoy the act of movement. I enjoy the fact that my body can still do stuff. And I enjoy the fact that I'm able to integrate my physical training with other aspects in my life. And so, for example, this morning, got up with my wife, with our silly little staffy that loves running, you know, went out and ran next to the river. And the sun was coming up over the river. I had this immense moment of gratitude, you know, just a beautiful experience. The dog was stoked. You know, I'm there with my wife doing something for my sort of mind, body, social layer. It's just an amazing, um, I, I guess, ability to recognise, as you've said, Dan, the wonderful things you have, rather than constantly thinking, gee, my times are down, or, you know, I've got this next thing coming up, or I'm going to be late for work. You know, that ability to, to live in the moment, mindfulness and gratitude has been a profound change for me. And the, the thing that I find funny is that I'm getting all these benefits out of stuff that I was doing anyway. It's almost just a fact of noticing it in itself is a really positive aspect. Yeah, I think that is it. Is it eudaimonic adaptate, adaptation? Am H- I getting that right? Hedonic adaptation. Hedonic, hedonic yeah. adaptation. The, yeah, that tendency to just recalibrate and your new baseline is is where your life is now. But I think that that uh, old analogy that blend blend. Blend 43 can taste pretty good that we use in the book, just talking, and, mm. and there's a story behind that by the book and read it, you'll know about it. But, <laughs> That's um, better, yeah, start plugging our book. <laughs> After you buy average 70 kilo digger. <laughs> but, but um, the, yeah, just I've started to take my gratitude to the level of thinking, geez, I'm glad nothing went terribly wrong today. And I, I guess working in a in a uh, emergency department as I am at the moment and 
And so I'll, I'll drive to work, I'll do my breathing on the way to work and, and spend a few minutes transitioning before I go into work, mm. uh, sort of psychologically, just thinking and thinking thoughts of not, you know, this is going to be flat out busy. People are going to be, you know, in having the worst day of their life and taking it out on me, which which happens. But just thinking, geez, I'm lucky to have this job. I'm privileged to be able to be providing this service and just view it in a different way and then go in and and try and take my best version of myself to every interaction, acknowledging that, that the people on the other end of the equation uh, may not be having their best day. I mean, they're in an ED at the end of the day, so things haven't gone to plan for them. <laughs> and so just just being really appreciative and then coming home and even it just just the other day our kids were being brats. We were all locked up at home because of uh, – because of lockdown and so we we're trying to homeschool them and it was a, a pretty tense moment and everyone was at each other's throats and but I, I kind of caught myself in that moment and thought you know what gee we're lucky we've, we've, mm. we've got three kids none of them have got any health issues we've never had any uh, sort of serious type you know, hospitalization surgeries anything like that we're just super privileged and, and here we are able to hop on the internet and our kids can continue their schooling in that fashion and and i sort of have started to think of it like backing up your computer you sort of recognize and save the files at this point in case things go horribly wrong in the future you can mm. you can look back and and just remind myself that if or when something goes terribly wrong down the track i'm going to look back on these days as being brilliant and so try and acknowledge them for what they are at the time and and try and do that as regularly as i possibly can the, the other thing that I've really, you spoke about hedonic adaptation before and that I got a big aha moment out of our research into that. And one of the prescriptions to avoid hedonic adaptation uh, is to keep the extraordinary extraordinary. So even if you can afford to fly business class every time you get on a plane, even if you can afford to buy Verve every time you, you, you want a, a tipple, um, the recommendation is not to. Because it leaves you no headroom. You know, if, if you normalize the things that were once luxuries, then, you know, where do you go from there? And so that idea of almost consciously not uh, sort of overindulging or not um, sort of treating yourself and keeping those things as something to look forward to and something that you, you get that pleasure out of because it is extraordinary um, is a really interesting way to look at it because I think we're programmed to just bigger, better, more, you know, we, we should be having verve every night for, with, with dinner, you know, that's a sign we've made it. Well, yeah, be careful what you wish for. Says he who just walked in with a barista-made coffee. Maybe I'll put Blend 43 <laughs> into the office. Yeah. No, actually, yeah, I'm, I'm not willing to practice that. But yeah, it's, it's a great point, too. Um, let's talk about social layer. This is one I reckon, uh, well, certainly our survey would suggest uh, for me is an area where I need to, to work on. And, and I think it's different for, for different people. Um, but, Tim, you're our champion on social layer. What are your thoughts on that? How have you found our research has helped sort of improve your social layer or help you recognise aspects that we, we can develop resilience from our social networks? It's funny. I think the key, key proof on the importance of the social layer is when you start talking to people about their social networks, you get these vigorous head nods. And I don't know how many times I've told the story of my football club, but even to my football club, when I talk about the importance of the club to each and every individual in it and oh by the way that football's irrelevant I get these incredibly vigorous head nods and I think that's a really interesting tell 
Um, yeah, look, the, the investment in, in the social layer beyond your social media connections, so trying to use that as an on-ramp to make meaningful connections with those people that are really important in your life. And, you know, to Dan's point, tell them that they're important in your life. You know, show that level of gratitude and appreciation about what they're doing for you. And um, importantly, in the social layer, recognise in yourself that you're there through active listening and through watching your own body language and theirs, um, but also making sure that they're there mm. as well. And, you know, Dan, your point on the mastermind group, you know, this is a Napoleon Hill theory that um, your mastermind group is beyond your family because they all have prejudices and biases on who they think you are <laughs> and what you can and can't do. Mm. And, oh, Tim, you'd never be able to do that. Oh, that's not really like you. And so pick those four or five or six people that, you know, really will make sure that you're ready to shoot for the stars and give yourself a really meaningful challenge in whatever it is next for you. It's it's funny. I mean, we touch on that, I think, in one of my vignettes in the book. And Dan, our dad, um, Hank, amazingly supportive, really gave us a whole bunch of, I think, good genetics, but also great role model behaviours. Lovely but, hair. Like, awesome hair. <laughs> <laughs> really good hair. And in fact, he, he was rocking a, a wicked moustache for a lot of the 80s, which, yeah, in fact, his, his whole life, which I'm, I'm sort of yet to Tom to Selleck? Yeah, it was, it Tom was, Selleck? he was the classic, you know, 80s helicopter pilot. There was, yeah, that was dad. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's awesome. <laughs> but um, even in spite of all of that, in, in that vignette in the book, you know, he was dismissive when I said I, I wanted to join the SAS. And it, it highlights that point that this is someone who wholeheartedly loved mm. me, supported me, encouraged me, gave me all these gifts. But to your point about family's uh, perspectives of your limitations, um, that, that was an interesting little um Example of that, I suppose. I had that from my dad when I wanted to leave the army. Right. He was insinuating, I should never leave the army. You'll never cut it in the real world. (laughs) You'll never make it outside the army. (laughs) True. And and it's it's very true. It's it's proven. (laughs) He was right. Should have stayed in the sheltered workshop. Yeah. Um, Yeah, no, I I find the the social layer amazing and another uh, sort of element of this this kind of gratitude of, of how lucky we are. I just on the weekend at, at my little boy's sports um, uh, basketball game ran into to someone who'd been at that dad mod uh, conversa- uh, presentation that you and I gave. Um, and so dad mod's a, a wonderful blog uh, started by a friend of ours and, and we spoke at one at their inaugural event, which brought a lot of parents, not just dads, but predominantly mm-hmm. dads together to start a conversation about resilience and in the in the um, context of parenting. Anyway, this guy had been at the um, event and sort of bailed me up on the, the sidelines to say, hey, listen, that was fantastic. And a lot of my mates are still talking about it. We're having these conversations as a result of what um, Chris and the Dad Mod crew had done and, and what we'd spoken about, which that to me is, is net, I think for me, really starting to get into the essence of this idea of community, mm. takes a village to raise an idiot, <laughs> whatever the saying is. But, you know, it that's some idiots to raise a village too. Yeah, yeah. Um, but to, to be able to, to develop that social layer, not just for yourself, but for others, this idea of the shield protecting others. Yeah, um, and wouldn't it be awesome if at water coolers around the world, people walked up to other people and said, hey, how's your shield? And you could then reflect on the sorts of things you've been doing for your differing layers over the last mm. little period of time and recognising, you know, if indeed you're having some struggles in your body layer or your social layer that you can provide a little bit of 
vulnerability that might allow that thing to thaw out and for mm. you to connect in different ways. That would be cool. We'd probably sell a lot more books if that was happening as well. <laughs> Sponsor some water bubblers. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, What's- I think just the things that come to mind talking around the social layer and once again being in a, in the, the medical realm and having worked in the past in a small hospital where we did palliative care and that, that was a real eye-opener. I mean, it was hugely... Uh, rewarding work which surprised me but I found it just tremendously rewarding to be able to just assist in sort of facilitating a pain-free and dignified uh, you know end-of-life care but the just watching the social dynamics around end-of-life and and even having uh, experienced it uh, ourselves Ben with dad's passing and just that was because we had we had such a good relationship with dad and there wasn't anything that was, was unsaid. And, you know, we, he, he knew we loved him and vice versa. I guess also we had the benefit of, of him having being unwell for some years before he passed. And so it wasn't a sudden thing, but it does bring home that fact to not leave anything unsaid. It, it does bring home that, you know, each day to uh, make a point of telling all my family that I loved them. I, I cut all my kids and, and as many times as I can, because it's like that, like I said before, it's like um, sort of backing up your computer. You never know when that's going to be taken from you. But the the whole, once again, we talked to it in the book, the memento mori, the remember you will die is a great way of, of putting a, a focus on, on life here and now and trying to be present. And also from a medical perspective, working in emergency departments, you do see the, the consequences of fate and just people's lives, uh, you know, altered or ended in a heartbeat. And so you really got to look at your social engagements, I think, through that lens, particularly with your loved ones. Another great uh, philosophy, I think, is the will it matter in five years mm. one. But I don't know who, who to attribute that to. But if there's something that you're really kind of wrapped around the axles about you and you, you look at it through that lens, is this going to matter in five five years, five weeks, you know, five months, whatever, five minutes maybe sometimes. If mm. it's not going to matter in five years, then how much energy do you really need to put into it? And, and particularly with, uh, you know, tips with loved ones and getting angry at the kids, just trying to back off and, and uh, yeah, look at, look at it through the lens of, gee, if, if something happened and they were no longer here, I'd miss them terribly. Or if something were to happen to me and they were the last words, you know, that would be uh, that would be devastating. So it's a pretty somber sort of a thought, but but seeing that experience play out in my medical role has really uh, made me approach my social interactions very differently. And so that touches on the professional layer. And Dan, um, you've spoken a number of times about. Uh, I mean, we talk in the book about virtuosity, trying to do your job as well as possible, even if maybe it's not that kind of dream job and the idea of finding purpose in your work, even if potentially you haven't yet found that job with your ultimate life's purpose. But you've spoken a lot about uh, your reflections on that Buddhist maxim to uh, reflect that it is about the journey and not the the destination. And, And I think this is a pretty interesting lens through which um, you can look at, at your, your professional layer of your resilience shield. Yeah, for sure. I think that's a great philosophy that everything is transient and temporary and enjoy it while you can, and, and, and which leads into that in, embrace the journey and the, the happiness is in the struggle, you know, embrace the suck if you want to use, I think the US Navy SEALs might be the, one, the ones responsible for that. But yeah, certainly the, and I think it is those 
when it comes to your social interactions, it's, it's not the grand gestures that really move the needle. It's all those small interactions, you know, day in, day out, hour in, hour out, helping, helping out here, working through bits and pieces, sitting down and doing some homework with your kids or shooting some, some basketball hoops. It's, it's not the big things. And it's the same. We, we talk a lot. Uh, a theme throughout the book is always a little further. And it, I think it's the same with your social relationships. It's not the, the big grand gestures. It's just the, the little things. And that comes back for me to being mindful, to being present when I'm with my kids. I, I'm, I'm with my kids. I'm there. If I'm, if I'm watching their game, I look around when I go to their basketball yeah. or their, their footy match, everyone's on their phones. I'm like, yeah, hey, hang on. Put your phone mm. away and watch your kid play sport because they see that even if they're five years old. They look up and, and they want you to be watching them. And, and so, yeah, just that, that being present. And- In fairness, they should get better. It's terrible. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I hear I think every parent listening will. <laughs> but no, I think that, yeah. that's the crucial stuff, isn't it? Hmm. What about adaptation, Tim? Can you tell us about the adaptation layer and, and have you found yourself adapting elements of your resilient shield to meet novel challenges? Yeah, I think so. I think so, yeah. I mean, I, I I keep coming back to the theme of meaningful challenges. You know, what are you going to do next that's going to give you that stretch target? Dan will wax lyrical about stress inoculation, but, you know, what what's the next thing in your life that you have to overcome? And, you know, whether it's my little example with rounding, just trying to explore that, I'm cycling the length of Tasmania in January with some mates, you know, I've got to train for that. I've mm. got to do something for my body. And of course, yeah, I'm going to do it with some of my closest friends and it's going to be uncomfortable and it's probably going to be miserable at times. But yeah, I think that's an important component in just getting ahead of adaptation. Yeah. The You're building these you know, stress loads or improving the strength of the layers of your shield in order to ready yourself for that moment mm. where life confronts you with something that you've never seen before. The, the metaphorical black swan. Yeah. What about you, Dana? Yeah, I think even on very small scales, I found myself thinking about this just yesterday when I was fixing a, a dripping tap of all things. And, <laughs> and so, I mean, this was something I've, I've replaced washers like most will have. It's pretty rudimentary. I, but And I did just that and the thing was still dripping and, and so rather than kind of throw my hands in the air and call the plumber and say, hey, come fix this, I, I pulled the thing apart. and <laughs> Flooded the house. And, yeah, done that before. But, uh, but I, I could see that where the washer actually sat on, the, where it was seated, was eroded and had a little divot in it. So even though the washer sat flat, the water was still lipping, dripping through and, and coming out there. And this was, a, I, mean, it, I know it's a really low level sort of example, but I understood the principle of what was, what was trying to happen there, that that was meant to close off. I could see what had happened. I knew that that thing needed resurfacing because of things like resurfacing heads in cars and head mm. gaskets. I knew it needed to be one of those two things. The washer wasn't the problem. So that's akin to your head gasket. It was actually that the head needed resurfacing. And so hopped online, looked up what that meant and found that you could get a, a rebore tool to resurface that 
flat section. And, mm. and so just having been resilient, if you like, to the stress of fixing a head gasket in a car and having gone to that experience, I could translate that across to this novel stress or of a tap that wasn't fixed with my normal fix, which was just replace washer. Yeah. I could see, oh, that's got a divot out of it. I could use a resource to find the thing I needed, went to Bunnings, 15 bucks later, came home, resurfaced it, put it back together. And 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 I know that's a, a very sort of trivial uh, example of, of adaptation, but I, I think that, and actually just yesterday I had another win with our dishwasher, and this is abnormal. Enough <laughs> <laughs> on the plumbing vignettes. Yeah, but, but, but isn't that a wonderful hub for adaptation? Yeah. Bunnings or your local department store. <laughs> I reckon if you were to stand in a Bunnings and ask people, what on earth are you doing coming into Bunnings? Most of them would have some variation of a story like that, that they've seen something break and they want to give it a crack. I reckon that's an awesome example, Dan, because it it brings together a number of the threads we've been talking about. Things like that McConaughey quote, which I'm going to mangle. You know, black isn't as black when you realise it's black. You know that that understanding that um, you know that that this is not just some some really stressful thing that you you can't even get your heads around, but you can reduce that perceived stress through problem solving that you've learned in other techniques. I think is that's a really good example. Hmm. I think what also plays into that is oftentimes, and not with a with a tap, but just the the, the fear of failure. With a lot of things, people won't attempt something new and novel. And we talk about examples where maybe you get painted into a corner metaphorically, and you and you've got to act and you've got to respond, and then you fall back on your resilience shield. But there's probably plenty of opportunities in everyone's life for them to step up and and expose themselves to something novel and force themselves to adapt and create new resilience to new stressors but we we don't do it for that that fear of failure or just that complete lack of confidence to be able to pull something apart and I think this is another thing that dad for better or worse instilled in in us Ben was that if someone can do it you can do it as well so you know if, if something's broken pull it apart and have a look. And, and we grew up with him doing just that. And I find myself uh, regularly performing microsurgery on throwaway items for the kids, soldering up, you know, 30 cent toys because they've stopped working. And and so it's that that confidence that leads to having a look, having a go with the, the acknowledgement that you might fail. And, and I might have completely botched the tap and have to call a plumber in to, to fix the whole thing at great expense. But, you know, you've got you to step up and put yourself out there as, as well. Were there any bits left over when you put the tap back together? Like those uh, the, IKEA furniture, there's always the something. There was, yeah, there was two screws. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> dishwasher. Uh, I've improved its power to weight ratio. I'll, I'll, and let that, it know they can make a massive saving on uh, manufacture because exactly. it works without those screws. <laughs> adaptation minus, perhaps. Uh, that's excellent. Well, I reckon that's taken us all the way around the, the resilient shield. Um yeah, I mean, without sounding too trite um, or too much like a, a shameless plug, I've actually really enjoyed the process of looking at this concept of resilience. Clearly, you know, we knew there was something in there. We knew we wanted to learn more about it because of what we'd seen with our friends. But it's funny how uh, much of a lifelong journey this is sort of created in us. And I can see all these uh, sort of habits and practices that we've I guess, uncovered or realised for ourselves, uh, continuing to be part of my life going forward, which I think has made it a lot better and, uh, to Dan's point, you know, maybe even a bit longer. 
Mm. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, people ask, hey, how's it feel? Your book's on the bookshelf and, you know, you walk in and it's right there. I think you start wanting to be an author. That's probably where you start the process. But that's not personally where I've arrived at at the end of the process. Um, my very simple philosophical thinking on this is if the book only sold one copy but the person that bought it ran up in the street and said, this book saved my life, that's why we've done it. And hopefully the people who hear that buy more copies. (laughs) (laughs) Buy 9,999 more. Yeah, agreed with all of that. I think the, 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 as I said before, the, the pleasure of this for me has been in the the, the struggle, if you like, and, and now that it's on the shelves, it's it's almost like, right, that's for us, I guess that's all we can influence. That's all we can influence mm. is, is putting the best bit of work that we could together and, and you know, working with the editors and, and them doing their best job of massaging this into something that we think's our best work. And um, I'm, I've been trying another philosophy I've been trying to embrace is trying to dis- disconnect myself from from outcomes and try to just focus mm. on the process. And and um, the, with this, I think that for me, it's been exactly as you said, Tim, and even if if we don't get that one person, hopefully, hopefully we will. But even if we don't, I think the process itself has been fantastic. Mm. I think the, the growth and the, the skills that, that we've all developed throughout it and the new experiences have been great. And uh, if the outcome's a good one, then great. But, you know, I think just enjoying that process and being satisfied with that's enough. Mm. Having said all that, we are keen for you to buy the book. You can get it at most major booksellers in um, in the physical form. Uh, certainly, audio book and ebook versions are available through all major retailers, and signed copies are available through our website resilientshield.com. In fact, don't buy many of those because then we've got to sign them. I was just going to say we are now on a deadline to go back and actually sign a ton of these and get them in the mail. Not true. We, we do love you. And if you write a note when you buy the book, if you want it made out to someone, then we'll do that too. Yeah, exactly. And in all seriousness, we would love to hear your feedback. Um, if you have uh, sort of read or listened to the book, we're really keen to, to hear the good, bad and ugly. Certainly, um, to Tim's point, if it has... Uh, helped you in some small way, that's absolute music to our ears and we, we love hearing that. But if there are things that you disagree with or that you think can be improved, we very much see this as a work in progress and, and we'd be really keen on that feedback as well. The modifiable part. Modifiable, mm-hmm. exactly. Yeah, and we talked to in the book about a very example of that in the innate layer where we thought we had a decent fix on on what that was all about and then a a lady in a a presentation I was giving stuck a hand up and said hang on have you thought about this and it was a it was a real light bulb moment so that sort of feedback is crucial for us to be able to move this thing forward. Also don't forget the resilient survey Um, that's a great place to start with a book in one hand and your survey results in the other that will just give you a nice vector into those areas of the book that you really need to pay attention maybe to Eckhart Tolle's whilst listening to the audio book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. With the e- e-book on the big screen. Wearing, Wearing your Resilient Shield T-shirt. <laughs> uh, <laughs> drinking a cup of Nescafe Blend 43 from your Resilient Shield ceramic mug. Um, links to all of which are in the show notes. Um, but in addition to providing that, that sort of benchmark and perspective to you, your input into the Resilience Survey also helps us in our ongoing research project which we're doing with the amazing Dr. Lise Notabart at the University of Western Australia. And in fact, we're just about to roll out 
um, the TRS-42, mm. the new and improved version of the survey, which incorporates all of the data analysis uh, that we've conducted to date from over 2,200 respondents, which is fantastic, mm. um, which has allowed us to streamline it, to work out what is really moving the needle in terms of those survey inputs, and to update the survey to get a couple of screens that um, our statistic and statistical analysis have shown are actually moving uh, the needle on global resilience. So we're excited about that coming out imminently and it demonstrates all those points we said before. This is an ongoing research project and we are updating it as we go. And uh, yeah, feedback for the book, build at resilientshield.com or you can get us, as always, debrief at unforgiving60.com. Dano, mate, always a pleasure. Thank you for your time. Likewise, gents. Cheers for your time. Good. Now back to work. <laughs> I don't know how to end this episode. <laughs> I think that's it. Just a wrap. It's probably... Just drop the mic and walk off stage. <laughs> insert, insert outro. Yeah, insert music. Righto. Great yeah. stuff, mate.
Now to the debrief. We try to go always a little further in this podcast and greatly appreciate your input. Please let us know your feedback, the good, the bad, or the ugly. Also, if you know someone who is living a life less ordinary, we'd love to hear about them. You can get in touch at debrief at unforgiving60.com. That's debrief at unforgiving60.com. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please tell your friends and write a review for us on Apple Podcasts. Until next episode, keep filling your unforgiving minutes with 60 seconds worth of distance run. See you next time on the Unforgiving 60.